Well, here in 2 Timothy 3 and 4, we've got some really great chapters. We've got here Paul in his final maturity. Paul about to die and writing to Timothy. And I think that you can learn a lot from meeting a fine brother like Paul in his final moments. That here you see someone who has really run a good race and is coming to the end. And we see, I think, what spirituality is really all about. We who maybe have our deaths or the end of our race still maybe, who knows, but maybe some way off. Uh, this, I suppose, in Paul, you see the, the end point. That this really is spiritual maturity of someone who I would uh, say, as far as we know, uh, certainly in recorded biblical history, rose up to the Spirit of Christ, I think, more than anyone else that, that I can think of, in, as I say, in recorded biblical history. And so here is someone in their final maturity. And let's just uh, remember that here's a man facing his death with all the emotion that goes with that and all the looking back in life that, uh, that is attached to that and all the self-knowledge and intensity that is attached to that. And yet you see him uh, looking out of his own immediate pain and his own immediate uh, fear of death to take time to write a letter to someone called Timothy who it seems to me reading between the lines of 2 Timothy was someone who was now in middle age who needed as we read in chapter 1 to stir up or to reignite as the Greek word means to reignite his faith someone who has become possessed with a spirit of fear rather than of a disciplined mind and uh, of power and of love someone who's starting to wander back to what he calls youthful lusts, whatever quite that means, uh, someone who is uh, slipping in their commitment. And I think that that is a sign of maturity, that in the midst of your own pain, be it physical or in any other form, you are able to look out of that to the needs of others. And you see that supremely, I think, in the crucifixion of the Lord, that there, with every part of his body in, in excruciating pain, because that was the design of uh, crucifixion, and with the huge mental and, uh, and emotional pain of betrayal, of dying for the people who were killing him, uh, of being unappreciated, etc., he looked out of himself to the needs of others, to the women, who were mourning, uh, he says, you know, don't weep for me, but for yourselves and for your children. And I think he means weep in repentance. And he, of course, is concerned about the thief dying next to him. He's concerned about the men who are actually uh, driving the nails in, that Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was concerned for his mother. Uh, he was concerned for John, and of course, above all, for, for us in, in that sense. And the problem with pain, in whatever form it is, physical or emotional, mental, is that it tends to make us very self-centered. And I've given the example, for example, you're carrying a very heavy load, and you don't uh, notice that your feet are making the carpet dirty underneath you. You don't notice that you might be crushing a child's uh, favorite toy beneath your feet, because this huge weight is upon you, and all you can think of is getting it from A to B. And I think that this is the, the real sign of maturity, to look out of yourself to, to the needs of others. And so he starts chapter 3 there by saying that in the last days, fierce times <clears throat> shall come. Now, he, he says this in, 
so often. He, he says, look, there's going to be a terrible time in the last days. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Timothy 4, and now here in 2 Timothy 3. And I would say that uh, that's a pattern, that he's saying, look, the last days, when they come, are going to be characterized by this situation. And in each of those passages, and it's your homework maybe to go back and have a look at them, but in each of them, he's talking surely about people within the ecclesia. Attitudes amongst the body of Christ will in fact be the, uh, the sign of the last days that we've got to be careful we don't get caught up in, and yet also the sign of the end. He says in verse 5 that these are those who have the, uh, in the Greek text there, the form of godliness, but deny its power. Now he talks about that form of teaching which was delivered to you in Romans 6 as if there was some body of Christian teaching that was perhaps understood before baptism or or taught after baptism or whatever and he says that uh, they have this but they deny its power. They contradict, is what the Greek means, the power thereof. So then the basic doctrines of the gospel should have an issue in practical life, but he says they're ever learning or ever studying, but never acknowledging the truth. Now what is the truth? The truth, I think, that he refers to is not so much a set of uh, doctrinal propositions that are true, because these people have, verse 5, the form of godliness. So the ultimate truth, as Paul presents it, particularly here in Timothy, is, I think, the, the life of repentance, the life of having it all come real, that all these uh, wonderful ideas that we have about the kingdom of God, that this applies to me personally, <clears throat> that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. Now, he says in chapter 2, verse 25, to instruct those that oppose themselves, and he seems to be talking to Timothy about how to behave within the house of God, if God perhaps will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. So then acknowledging the truth is not ticking a set of uh, theological propositions, ticking the boxes. Uh, Acknowledging the truth is repentance. And you may like to scribble there in your margin, Jeremiah 5 verse 1 where God says, see if you can find a man that seeks the truth, and I will pardon him. So to seek the truth is in that sense to repent. The ultimate truth is that we are sinners and stand condemned before God, and yet we have been declared right. That is, Paul says in Romans, the essence of the gospel. And that is the ultimate truth, that we shall live forever. And so, when he says in chapter 4, verse 4, that the time comes when they will not endure sound doctrine, but they will turn away, that is, from the truth, and turn unto fables, yes, that could be talking about doctrine, uh, false doctrine, and believing false things, and what anyone says that happens to be uh, attractive and convenient. But I think, why do people turn away their ears from the truth? It's because they want to justify their way of life. So, to do truth, And uh, Paul uses in his writings uh, a Greek verb that means just that, to truth. It's not quite there in English, but to do truth. And that is to to live uh, a life of integrity, of hope, of faith, of recognition of sin, of belief, 
joyful belief in forgiveness and the certainty of salvation. So what I think he's saying in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Timothy 4, here again at the end of 2 Timothy, that the time will come when that will no longer be the case and it will be associated uh, with people uh, poorly behaving and interacting to others within the body of, of Jesus. It says in chapter 3 verse 9, their folly shall be manifest unto all men and I think that that is talking about the day of judgment because in this life the folly of sinful behavior is not manifest to all men but we know from uh, Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 4 that the purpose of the day of judgment is to manifest is to manifest us and there will be some public element to that manifestation that revelation because in Revelation 16 you read about how the rejected will walk naked and they shall see his shame now shame occurs in the context of others' eyes and so that fits in with how Jesus says that um, you will see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob go into the kingdom but you yourselves shall be cast out he says don't be hypocritical because all is going to be revealed in that day as if in some way and how uh, mechanically this all works out I don't think we have to worry about but in some way our lives and the Lord's analysis of those lives will be public before all so he's talking here about how these people who are therefore at the very least responsible to judgment they have the form of godliness uh, that these people's folly will be manifest to all men and Jesus tells a parable of the wise and foolish virgins and he says then the kingdom of heaven that's Matthew 25 1 then the kingdom of heaven will be likened to wise and foolish virgins in other words after the judgment experience then we will realize the utter folly of the rejected the materialistic person Jeremiah 17:11, at his end and that is his rejection of the day of judgment at his end shall be a fool it's not necessarily in this life that someone dies and is uh, thought to be a fool uh, it is only at the day of judgment ultimately now this utter folly of the rejected is um, quite a theme of, uh, of Bible teaching in, in various places that explains I think the weeping and gnashing of teeth the anger with self uh, for the fool that I have been we all live under the misapprehension that we are rational people, that we make clever, normal, informed decisions, that we look right and left and right again or whatever it is when you cross the road, that I don't jump red lights when I'm driving. And we assume that that's how we are, but actually in spiritual terms we are presented in the Bible, and we, we may as well accept this, as being foolish in the extreme. But I think that it took Paul in final maturity to come to see that the folly, the absolute idiocy of any other way of being in this world apart from of total commitment to the Lord now because Paul realized that the day of judgment is going to make all things manifest in the last day he says in verse 10 of chapter 3 here you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, patience, etc there was an openness in Paul 
And that sense of purpose, when he says, you've known my purpose, that sense of purpose and determination comes over quite often in the, uh, in the life of Paul, Acts 19.21. Um, he purposed in his spirit, he determined to do this and that. And so at the end of it, of his life, he can say, look, I'm open. And that's a great way to end, really, I think, that openness to God and man. That I don't have any secrets, I'm prepared for the day of judgment. Uh, there'll be no surprises for any of you uh, when you meet me there and see my life opened up. That's it, who you see is who I am. And so he exhorts Timothy, he goes right back to the foundation, as it were, in verse 15 and 16. He reminds him that uh, you know the Holy Scriptures and that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, verse 16 and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, and correction, instruction in righteousness. And then he says, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, verse 2, preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season, when it's convenient, when it's not convenient. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all doctrine, with all teaching. Why? You see, chapter 4, verse 2, is connected with chapter 3, verse 16. Because the Bible is as it is, because Scripture is as it is, and is so profitable for all those things, therefore use it. So the theme that's coming out here is use the potential which God has made possible for you. Use God's Word. Now, incidentally, when it says uh, be instant in season and out of season in the AV, out of season is... Uh, a Greek word that occurs only once elsewhere, and it's in Philippians 4.10, where it's translated lacking opportunity. So he's saying, I think, preach the word whether you've got the chance or whether you haven't. In other words, don't wait for the opportunity. Have an outgoing desire to take that message to others. And I think we perhaps could set ourselves the goal that every day I will try to share the gospel with somebody. could be leaving a tract somewhere. Uh, it could be using the internet in some way. Get on a forum, send someone a link uh, to, to a page that talks about the gospel. Do something every day, at least somebody, to share that message. As I say, Lacking opportunity or not, or having the opportunity, do it. Don't uh, wait for the opportunity to come. Have an outgoing spirit. I think that's what he's saying. And so, <clears throat> Paul keeps on holding himself up, really, I think, as uh, Timothy's example. And he, he says, you know, preach the word uh, in season or out of season, uh, and yet that's exactly what Paul did. Acts 20, verse 18, when he was at Ephesus, and Timothy is at Ephesus when Paul is writing to Timothy, um, when uh, Paul was at Ephesus, he said, I have spoken the word, preached the word at all seasons. Acts 20, 18. And he's telling here Timothy to, uh, to do the same. He says in that same address, uh, in Acts 20, verse 20, that he had taught what was profitable to others. And there, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says that all the scripture is profitable and is to be used to profit others. And of course, uh, he exhorts them in, uh, when he's talking to the Ephesians 
that hard times are coming, Acts 20, 29 and 32, uh, and we need to, and he commends them to, to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. And this is really what he's telling uh, Timothy. And he, he warns the uh, people there in Ephesus that uh, there's going to be the, the time coming when people will turn away. That's exactly what he says here to Timothy 4, verse 3. And uh, we could develop that quite often uh, in 2 Timothy, particularly in chapters 1 and 2, where he talks about enduring hardness, hardship for the gospel, not being ashamed of the gospel, as it seems Timothy was. And yet he's, later on, here in these chapters 3 and 4, especially chapter 4, he's saying that that is exactly what he is doing, enduring hardness, going through difficult times, but he's not ashamed. And so that, again, I think, is uh, the mark of maturity, that without any sense of arrogance or self-presentation, you can encourage others from your own example. And uh, <clears throat> that, as I say, I think is, uh, is really quite, uh, quite the sign of, of spiritual maturity. By the way, when he was uh, talking to the uh, Ephesians there, he's actually in Troas when he says it, but he's talking to the Ephesians uh, in Acts 20, verse 24, he says, None of these things that he's going to suffer, they did, none of them deflect me, neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And he says here in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have finished my course. So there was a, a very strong sense of purpose, that I have a purpose, I have a, a race in front of me, and I have now finished it. Now that's a great way to end your life. Now if our objectives in this world are simply to get the next car, the next model, the newest model, uh, to have uh, that holiday here or there, well yes, we've been around Italy now, oh, my next aim is to... Uh, have a holiday in Spain, or whatever it might be, um, or to have that house, or that job, or that career. Well, all right, even if you manage to achieve those things. And? And so what? You will just join the ranks of uh, disillusioned old people, older people, I should say, um, who, who don't really have too much to look back on their lives, and that's it. What a sad end. Uh, if you're lucky and cancer and heart attacks don't, don't get you, you'll be doddering around in the, some old folks' home, probably. And what have you got to look back on? Whereas if your life has been based not around all that, that stuff, but around serving God, and you've, got, you've had specific objectives to, I don't know, start a mother's group, to uh, run uh, some program for the, for the hungry, to spread the gospel, to persuade at least a few people in the course of your life of Jesus Christ, and to explain him to them, to baptize them, to, uh, to pastor them, to see their growth in Christ, could be to write something, make a website, whatever it might be, then when all is said and done, you have achieved your purpose. Now I'm not saying that works save, that is not at all what I'm saying, it's a penny a day for all of us, those who work hard and those who don't, but I'm talking about the sense of purpose which there should be in, uh, in, in human life um, with specific uh, aims now God has given each of us something to trade Jesus uh, in the parable told us how we've each been given something to trade, in fact quite a lot uh, of wealth 
spiritual wealth to go and trade. And that should be our priority. And if you don't sense at this point in your life what exactly your calling is, you need to really ask God and keep on asking several times a day. And in the daily reading of his word, uh, reflection, prayer, meeting with others, going through life, he will reveal that to you without question. Now, there's a few features of uh, Paul's very final words that I I want to uh, talk about. In my uh, book on uh, Paul, I have written out all the times when he alludes to the Gospels, and I'm sure I've missed many of them. But I, I did do that, and I went through his recorded words, as they are in Acts and all his letters, and tried to find all these different allusions that he's making uh, back to, to the Gospels. And then I listed Paul's letters um, chronologically, uh, as best I could, and fitted in the recorded words of Paul that you've got in Acts into that. So you've got this large body of text uh, from Paul, and with all these uh, allusions to the Gospels. What's interesting when you lay it out chronologically is that when you come to 2 Timothy, which would seem to be his very last letter, he is alluding to the words of Jesus to, to the Gospels more frequently, more intensely than he does any other time. About one in three uh, verses here, there is an allusion to the Gospels. So you can see that, uh, and, and by the way, when you lay out the letters chronologically, you see that it's a kind of uh, fairly smooth upward curve that he increasingly, increasingly alludes to the Gospels. Give you uh, an example, 2 Timothy 4 verse 7, he says, I have finished my course. And incidentally there, and you can scribble this down, he's alluding to at least five places in the Gospels. Matthew 26:58, Luke 12:50, Luke 18:31, Luke 22:37. Um, and also I, I would put a question over John 13:1, but maybe John wasn't written then, but uh, I think it was. But uh, anyway, my point is that he really has got the Gospels absolutely in his heart. He says in verse 17 of 2 Timothy 4 how he wished that all the Gentiles might hear. Now that's John 17, uh, Jesus desiring at his time of dying that all the world might know. So then that, I think, is a sign of our spiritual maturity, that as you go on in life you become more and more Christ-centered. And I think we should be reading the Gospels every day there should be something of Jesus in our daily diet. And if there isn't, well, I hope you're not reading any novels, you're not looking at the internet, you're not, I mean, cruising around the internet for entertainment and stuff. The Gospels and the Spirit of Jesus, this must be central and crucial to the life in Christ. Now, going on with um, all those uh, statistics... I started to play around a little bit, um, and I looked at how many times Paul refers to Jesus as the Lord. And from what I could work out, the average is once every 26 verses in his uh, letters and in his recorded speech. 
he's talking about Jesus as the Lord. But in 2 Timothy, he calls Jesus the Lord once every six verses. And in 2 Timothy 4, once every three verses. So his appreciation of the utter lordship of Jesus in his life grew and grew. He appreciated the excellency and the supremacy of Jesus, that he is Lord and Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, I really think, is a pattern for us in, in every way. And you also see him looking back on uh, difficulties he'd had in, in relationships. <clears throat> he, uh, he says in, in chapter 4 there, verse 11, Take Mark and bring him with you, for he's profitable to me for the ministry. But you remember how he'd fallen out with Mark, and uh, he had not found him profitable in the ministry. And now he says, okay, you know, it's his way, I think, of uh, expressing maybe his repentance for that fallout with Mark, and also perceiving the good that there was <clears throat> in, uh, in Mark. In verse 16, he laments, I think not without bitterness, that at my first answer no man stood with me, that there's an ecclesia there in Rome that he loved so much, he'd written his letter of the Romans to, he'd risked so much to get to them, and then in his time of final trial for his life, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. This again is Jesus in Gethsemane. Um, but he, he says, I pray God that it may not be laid to their charge, that not one person from the ecclesia could stand with Paul and testify for him when he was on trial for his life. They all forsook him. And of course he'd had this in Asia, that all those in Asia forsook him, and all those in the Rome ecclesia at this time and this way forsook him. Although you remember how positively he writes about them when he wrote to the, uh, to the Romans. And yet he prays that this will not be laid to their charge. This is Jesus on the cross, Father forgive them. And that is again I think the sign of spiritual maturity. That whatever betrayal, whatever failure we have experienced from the body of Christ, we in the end forgive it. And try to perceive, as Paul did in Mark, that which was positive in them. And so many, unfortunately, go the other way, that their lives become uh, an endless tale of bad experience which they've had with other brethren within the body of Christ. It's all they seem to want to talk about, lament, etc. And yet, spiritual maturity, as we see it in Paul, the spirit of the cross, because in all this, as I say, he, he's alluding to Jesus in Gethsemane, Jesus on the cross, etc., Father, forgive them, um, this is the spirit of the cross, forgiving others, accepting others, seeing the positive, and of course, above all, being so confident that I will, by God's grace, because he died, for, because Jesus died for me, I will really be saved. For me, at least, the gospel is ultimately true.